your eyes are not deceiving you. I am not some new hip, hipster pastor. My name is Dennis Fowler, and I am one of the elders here at Grace Covenant Church, and uh, so that they're not a distraction to you like they are to me, as I'm still getting used to them, I did receive some new spectacles. So um, this is, wel- welcome to the mid-40s, Dennis. This is what it looks like. <laughs> a person once said, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, and comfortable with friends and family, successfulness in our career, no amount of money, power, planning can prevent bereavement, dire illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Life is tragic. Life can be tragic. We all need support if we are not to succumb to despair. And these words were written, they may sound very doom and gloom, but these words were actually written by a pastor, Tim Keller, uh, who was the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. These words were written by him 10 years before he would battle cancer for the second time. And the second time, he would ultimately go to be with the Lord in May of 2023. And this quote is from a book that I work through with a group of my seniors in order to equip them for real life. And why is that? Well, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in it so far as you share Christ's sufferings. We, the people of God, are called to share in the sufferings of Christ. Really, everyone is called to suffer. Whether you are born again or not born again, I believe it was last week whenever Pastor Joel quoted C.S. Lewis, where God uses pain and suffering as a megaphone to wake up a deaf world. And it would not be difficult to look in other places in Scripture, would it not, to read about the other suffering and facing uh, of griefs that the people of the Bible went through. Psalm 6, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Psalm 6, again, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. Psalm 42, my tears have been my food day and night. I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? These are words by David in Psalm 6 and Psalm 42. And a third of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. It extends beyond the book of Psalms. Uh, Pastor Joel was in 2 Samuel last Lord's Day where he was working through a Psalm, or not a Psalm, but a passage of Lament by David 
whenever he was grieving Jonathan and grieving the death of Saul. Experiencing trials isn't limited to the people of the Bible. It's a reality for us as well. And we shouldn't be surprised, though we are. But it's impossible to face suffering. It's impossible to face your own griefs and do it introspectively. As, in, as we open up God's word to Psalm 54 this morning, my prayer for you is that God's word would be a wonderful counselor to you. That your minds would be renewed, but that it wouldn't stop there. That the Lord would press upon your heart the name of somebody, someone who is also suffering, someone who is also grieving, who's going through either a momentary affliction or what seems to be like a very long season. And the comfort that the Lord has given you in your lifetime, you would then comfort them the same way. And Psalm 54 is going to be on page 445 if you're using a pew Bible. Let's go to the Lord and read his word. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness. Put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. My eye has looked in triumph over on my enemies. In looking at this text, it's clear to see that this is a recorded prayer of David. The subtitle gives us an indication of the historical context that prompted David to pray this particular prayer. A mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us. Remember from previous sermons in Psalms, a mascal means instruction. So the Lord intended that this psalm, as well as all of God's word, would be instruction to you. And also remember, I believe it was in the summer of 2022, we were in 1 Samuel 23. Pastor Joel preached this sermon. And this 1 Samuel 23 helps us understand the circumstances surrounding Psalm 54. You don't have to go there. I'm, I'm just going to give you the highlights this morning. So David, at this point, has been on the run. He has been fleeing from Saul. I think the best passage in the Bible that would sum up their difficult relationship at this point is 1 Samuel 18, 28 through 29. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. 
And it was at this point in 1 Samuel 23 whenever David told, was told that the Philistines were fighting against the people of Kilah. And David inquired of the Lord, Lord, do you want me to go and fight on their behalf? And the Lord said, go and fight. They will be given into your hands. David told his men, men, the Lord has told me to go and fight for the people of Kilah. The Philistines are fighting against them and they're winning. And his men were like, David, are you sure? Like the Philistines. You slayed their giant many years ago, but this army is huge and we are only so many men. David inquired of the Lord again, Lord, do you want me to go? Do you want me to go and fight on behalf of the people of Kilah? The Lord said, go. So David and his men went and fought for the people of Kilah, defeated the Philistines, but yet something happened. The people of Kilah told Saul, by the way, David is among us, so the people that David just saved betray him and told Saul, Saul is with us and he's here if you want him. It doesn't stop there. David fled. He went to the wilderness of Ziph. He was feeling betrayed. He was sorrowful. And the Ziphites, in order to probably earn some favor in the eyes of Saul, told Saul, hey, David is here as well. And this is where he's hiding. He's in the woods. He's in the wilderness. Go get him. And what does David do? David experiences two betrayals. He was continued to be pursued or hunted down. And it was possible that it was at this point that David responds with this prayer in Psalm 54. And I'm willing to bet no one in this room has ever been hunted down, but you have been betrayed. If there's breath in your lungs this morning, you possibly have been betrayed. It's not one of the most joyful things to experience. But what was most apparent in my study, in, in my preparation for this sermon, is that during, during David's suffering in this circumstance, his view was, of God was just magnificent. It was awesome to see how he viewed God, even though he was experiencing these two betrayals, even though he was mourning and he was grieving and facing the pain of his own griefs, he had a certain view and understanding of God. And it was this understanding of God that helped him during this suffering. And if you're note takers, there's five different views, five different ways that David understood God to be. God was his sovereign savior. God was the highest judge. He was the hearer of prayers. God was his helper and sustainer. And God was his deliverer. It's one thing to have a high, correct, biblical view of God whenever peace like a river attendeth your way. But what about whenever sorrows like sea billows roll? How's your understanding of God at that point? How is your walk with the Lord at that point? How is your confidence in the Lord at that point? And as we work together in this text, the argument that I'm going to be putting forth this morning 
is that your understanding of God in all circumstances is important. Pertaining to suffering, whether or not you even go to the Lord is determined by your understanding of Him. Your understanding of God directly affects your level of trust in Him presently as you experience whatever you experience in, provision, in His provision for the future. So, let us learn more about David's understanding of God. Looking at verse 1, who do we see that David runs to in this affliction as people seek his life? O oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Does anyone else in here admit that they have self-talk? Like we have, that doesn't mean that you're crazy. It might mean that you're a little crazy or I'm a little crazy. But we all have this running dialogue with ourselves. And we generally don't give ourselves the best advice. David was the same. He was no stranger to giving counsel to himself or talking to himself. Psalm 42, if you remember, whenever Pastor Andrew preached through that sermon, David asked of himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? But that response of him talking to himself is not what we see in Psalm 54. His initial response within this trial is not an inquiry of himself. <clears throat> David's life was in danger. He didn't give himself a pep talk. The answer wasn't self-love, which is very common today. Whenever you're going through something that's hard and difficult the language of the culture is you need more self-love that's not what we see here it's also not self-pity now it's easy whenever you're going through an affliction to feel down you're sorrowful but what we see from david is not a woe is me kind of complex the other thing that we do not see here is self-condemnation we don't see that here. We don't see David relying on himself in any way because it wouldn't produce the results that David knew that he needed. David at this point was in the company of hundreds of men. But he didn't go to his men either. Oh God, save me by your name. We knew that David and Jonathan had a very close relationship. Joel mentioned that last week. But David doesn't even go to Jonathan it's, it's not even said here in this text the Lord has given the church many wonderful many wise men and women brothers and sisters in Christ to give us counsel but David doesn't seek counsel from his friend or his brother at this time David's response in his prayer is this he turns his eyes to the heavens. And this is important. <clears throat> he goes to the Lord. Again, oh God, save me by your name. There's desperation here. This really, this prayer, this, this beginning of it, is really a picture of him not casually or passively approaching the Lord. No, if there was a good word picture of this prayer, this beginning line, David was running to the Lord for help. 
his attitude. My life is in turmoil. My life is in danger. I need to be saved. Who else but the Lord can I go to? And David at this point is needing a savior, but not any savior. There were many saviors in his day. He, in fact, was a type of savior. But that's not what we see here. He doesn't go to any normal type of human savior. He is going to God in prayer. He is going to God asking him to save him. His understanding at this moment is seeing God as a sovereign savior, the highest savior. There is no other savior like God, the one who has all power, all sovereignty, the highest love, the highest good for David. And this sovereignty of God is not only in Psalm 54. You would say amen to that if I were to ask you. We see this all over Scripture. 1 Samuel 23, 14. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. God prevented Saul from finding David. That's, that doesn't just take a little bit of sovereignty. That takes a lot of sovereignty over the entire situation, the entire expedition of Saul finding David. Down to the very minutia of events, God had control and sovereignty over that situation. Psalm 139 is a psalm that I've, I've appealed to before in sermons. It's a wonderful psalm. It's another psalm of David. David composed this psalm again whenever his life was at risk. Trouble found David a lot. Powerful people were opposing him. They hated God, and because these powerful people hated God, they hated David too. And they threatened his life. You can go to Psalm 139 if you'd like. I'm going to be here just for a moment. David's response in 139 is the same that we see in Psalm 54, the same very response that we see today. He flees from trouble by faith, and he runs to God. And within Psalm 139, David shares more truths, revealing his understanding of who God to be. 139 verse 3, You are acquainted with all of my ways, Continuing on, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Skipping down to verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I free, flee from your presence? Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. And just in these four passages of Psalm 139, David reveals that God knows him, God is with him, and God created him. Who else or where else would David run to for safety or for deliverance? God is a refuge, a very present help in times of trouble. Who are we quick to run to? I mentioned a little bit ago that, the God, that God has given us many wonderful gifts, 
We have many benefits in Christ, like brothers and sisters, parents, elders. All these people are wonderful resources that the Lord has given us. And that friend, that parent, that brother and sister in Christ, that elder, they love you. They want want what is best for you. But their love for you does not compare to the love, care, and attention that a sovereign Savior has for his people. There is none like the Lord among the gods. Psalm 86, 8. So the Lord is still, just as he was in the days of David, he is today. He is a sovereign Savior today. From calamity, from suffering, more importantly, he is a sovereign Savior over your sin. The sovereign Savior that David cried out to, O God, save me by your name, revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Those who by grace are made aware that they are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior who cry out, O God, save me, and repent of their sin, find rest for their weary souls. They find forgiveness and they find no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Looking on in Psalm 54, in the latter part of verse 1, because David sees God as his sovereign Savior, there are multiple requests that David brings. And that first request that he would pray is that God would vindicate him. Vindicate him. Vindicate me by your might, David prays. Who vindicates? Who clears people of wrongdoing? Judges. Judges vindicate. Judges clear people. Judges weigh the evidence and assign where guilt is supposed to be. And they clear the innocent. David understood God as his sovereign savior, but also as a sovereign judge. One could be cleared in an earthly court by an earthly judge, but still be condemned by the highest eternal judge. Guilty people today walk around like nothing is wrong. They walk around like their sin or their crime isn't going to be found out. But they're indifferent to the fact that one day they will stand before the eternal judge, Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 4, we're told that he will judge the living and the dead. Also for David, to be cleared by God meant that no, truly no fault could be found upon him, including Saul. If he was cleared by God then in reality, he would be cleared by other people. Also, if the Lord is so sovereign to save David, then the Lord can also clear his name to the point where Saul and all of his many men would stop pursuing. We continue on with David's understanding. God, save me by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Another request that David brings before God O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. Now, you may look at this passage and and think, well, does God need to be prompted to hear our prayers? If David didn't ask for God to pay attention, 
would God not pay attention? That's not what this text is saying. This is not what David believes. David doesn't, David doesn't believe that God doesn't hear him until he asks for it. He also doesn't understand God to be indifferent to prayer or even aloof. Proverbs 15, 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. God is everywhere. God hears all things. But in relation to his desire to hear prayer, he can be far, but he's not far from his people. He is far from the wicked in relation to their prayer. The Lord was ready to hear David. He is always ready, and he's ready to hear your prayers as well, whether in good or calamitous circumstances. If you're robed in the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ, then you are not deemed to be a part of the wicked, and God is not far from you. God is ready to hear your prayers this morning. And it's interesting, if we look ahead, if you're still at Psalm 54, if you look ahead to Psalm 55, where we're going to be next week, in fact, David says, give ear to my prayer, O God. In verse 1 of Psalm 55, this was a common expression. Again, this means, Lord, I need you to act quickly. I need you to pay attention, Lord. I got something big. Something, is, something big is going on. I need you, and I need you right now. Please pay attention. Act quickly. So David asked God to act quickly. And the reason that he asked God to act quickly, looking at verse 3, is because strangers have risen against him. Ruthless men seek his life. They do not set God before themselves. What does it mean that they do not? We understand what ruthless means. Evil. But what does it mean that they do not set God before themselves? Even though it says strangers... The context is still the same. This is Saul, and this is all of his men. They do not set God before themselves. They were indifferent to the ways of God. They aren't obedient to the Lord and his word. God is not set before them. They are leaning on their own understanding. They do not trust in the Lord. There is no acknowledgement to him. I believe it was last week whenever Joel said that in 1 Samuel, Saul loved to speak Christianese. Maybe we've heard that saying before, or you remember that from last week. This is whenever you look the part of a Christian, or you play the part of a Christian, or you speak the part of a Christian. You say all the right things. On the outside, you look like you are a Christian, but inside, you, you truly are not. Your lips profess Christ, but your heart is far from Christ. And this is who Saul is. He was saying all these things about acknowledging God and thanking God, but that's not what we see in Saul. Saul is completely different from David. Saul does not have God set before him. He is not trusting in the Lord. He's trusting in himself at this point, and he is doing whatever his heart desires and that is going after David 
In Psalm 53, it speaks about those who say there is no God. I preached that sermon. This is about practical atheism. And this is a dangerous place to be. But for those people who do not set God before themselves, who speak as if they are God's people, who believe they act on behalf of God, but in reality, they fulfill whatever their wicked hearts desire. This is a dangerous place to be. And the result is the same. Whether you are the practical atheist and you deny God's existence because you love your sin so much, or God is not set before you, you do whatever your wicked heart truly desires, but yet you still profess Christ from your lips. You are a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but your bones, everything inside of you is dead. Your heart is far from Christ. The result is the same for these two people, and that is eternal condemnation. That is what awaits them. So looking on to verse 4, you see a pause there. You see a selah. And this is very important because at this point, there's a little transition here. And possibly not even a little transition. Because if you look at the language of the first three verses and you look at the language of the last four verses, it's completely different. It's almost as if there's two different people speaking here. And what's interesting to me is this transition where David transitions from a worry and anxious, anxiousness over ruthless people to a confidence and a trust in the Lord. Looking at verse 4, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return <clears throat> evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness put an end to them. And it's at this point where David continues, right? Where David, what we're seeing from David is his understanding of God. We, we see his response to God. He flees by faith to God, goes to God in prayer during this trouble. And within this prayer, we see the way he understands God. And this is going to help inform us because this is really good, friends. So in verse 4, his understanding is expounded upon. Behold, God is my helper. David, at this point, refers to God as a helper, as the upholder. We probably have some idea of what it means to help someone, probably have an idea of what it means that God is our helper. But for all those in Christ, that God is their helper, this means that they are on the right side. They are on God's side. God is set before them. Unlike Saul and his men and all the ruthless strangers that the text says, they don't set God. This is completely different. This is a great contrast to see. God is for them and they are for God. It also means that this person who sets God before them, whose God is their helper, that they are not only on the right side, but they are on the side of truth and righteousness. It means that they are on the side of the one who will always win and prevail in every circumstance. Not only was the Lord David's helper, but David 
testifies that the Lord is the upholder. An upholder is generally not a term that we hear in today's language, do we not? I don't, I've never told anyone, you're a great upholder. You probably haven't either. Hey, thank you for upholding me. That's, that would be weird to say to somebody. We, we don't understand what that means. But the, I think the NIV translation renders it well. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Upholder means sustainer. To be the sustainer of someone means that one being sustained is dependent on the sustainer. So David doesn't use language that expresses that the Lord is a sustainer. As in the Lord is, Lord, you're one of many sustainers, and I thank you. No, what David says here is, Lord, you are the sustainer. You are the true sustainer. This is David's acknowledgement. Lord, I am dependent upon you. I need you every minute. I need you every hour. I need you every day. This upholding and sustaining nature of God is seen elsewhere. David would know this. God's word informs David of who his understanding of God is. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all of their host. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. All things, in other words, come from God's hand and all things depend upon God for their continued existence. Thinking about sustaining nature of God, we already went through the book of Hebrews uh, last year. Hebrews 1.3 says this, speaking of Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he, here's this word, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So, this passage in Hebrews informs the same of the sustaining nature of God. God upholds the universe by his son Jesus Christ. And not only did, his, not only did Jesus Christ enter history to save us, but he sustains history by the word of his power. And this is who David knew the Lord to be. He knew the Lord to be his helper. He knew the Lord to be his sustainer. He knew that he depended upon the Lord's sustaining grace in every way. Every move he made, every breath he took, every thought he thought. Continuing on. David's understanding of God continues. We have sovereign Savior, the hearer of prayers. There's a contrast between who Saul and his men are versus David. God is David's helper. God is David's sustainer. And we continue to deliver. Verses 5 through 7. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble 
and my eye has looked in triumph over my enemies. Because God, David has this understanding of God, not because David is like some amazing person. And we'll talk about it a little bit. We, We shouldn't esteem him too highly. He is a sinner just like us. His motives are tainted with sin just like us, as are his emotions. The reason David understands God the way that he does is because God has revealed it to David through his word and through his faithfulness over David's life. And David is remembering these things. He's remembering God's faithfulness to him. And because God is faithful and he knows that God is a judge, looking at verse 5, he knew that the judge, God, would not turn a blind eye to the evil that was being done to him. David gave thanks, David gave praise, because he knew God was faithful, that the Lord would deliver him. So he trusted God. And what we see in verse 7 where it says, for he has delivered me from every trouble. David, lastly, in his understanding of God, viewed God as his deliverer. And what we see in this last verse is not an allusion to David being delivered. Rather, this is a confidence. This is a confidence that God will do what, God, what David knows God can do. This is not a reality that David was delivered already from Saul and his men from this present affliction and suffering. What we see here is David's confidence in God. Because of God's character, because I know who God is and my understanding that he's informed me by his word through his faithfulness over the years, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God will deliver me from this evil. This confidence that David had is important but again we should not esteem david too highly we read the psalms and we marvel at least i do at the confidence of the psalmist but david's confidence if you've ever lived in the psalms as i have it's a great it's a great book to live in walking through any kind of suffering where it feels like you can identify with the psalmist in many ways But what we cannot forget is that David's confidence ebbed and flowed. And regarding Psalm 54, this prayer of his ends with a very high faith, a very high confidence in God. And it's important for us because this should be desired. But if you're like most people, and if you're like me, Whenever you see David and you see this great confidence that he had in the Lord, you see that just way out of view. I could never have anything like this. David's confidence and understanding of God is is beyond me. Where I am in my suffering, where I am in this pit, where I am in this mire, the struggle that I'm having, I can't have this kind of confidence in God. I have some confidence I know God has saved me from my sins. But 
my confidence in the Lord to get me through whatever I'm going through, it's just not there. What's your understanding of God today? Is it, is it a high view of God? Is it a high understanding of God? Is it a correct understanding of God? If you're looking at this passage and you're thinking, my confidence in God is not where David's confidence is, you're in, you're in good company. Because a lot of us, <clears throat> you look at verse 3, and you feel like you're stuck in this endless cycle of verse 3 where things are just repeating and you can't get out you know God is there you perhaps flee to God on some occasions by faith and you pray a similar prayer but God I'm still stuck in verse 3 and I can't get out and ruthless men and this affliction and the suffering is still happening to me and Lord I want to have the confidence that David had in you I want to be delivered like it seems that David was delivered. And I want you to remember, friends, that the Lord does not call his people to eternal suffering. That's what he rescued you from. Through Christ Jesus. And if you are struggling this morning with your trust in God, with your confidence, I pray that you would continually flee by faith to God. That this prayer by David, oh God, save me by your name, would be on repeat in your life. That you would pray for deliverance. That you would, if you remember the story of the father whose child was possessed by a mute spirit. And the father cried out what? What words? I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And I want to remind you, beloved, this morning that if you've trusted in Christ, and if you've repented of your sin, I want you to be encouraged this morning because the understanding that, God had, that David had of God, this sovereign Savior, the hearer of prayers, the helper, the sustainer, the deliverer, your confidence in that reality, that fact, does not change the fact that this is who truly is. God is your amount of faith or confidence does not change who God objectively is in your life and I pray I pray that you would see Christ as your sovereign savior that you would be reminded and that you would run to God in prayer because he hears your prayers that you would understand that you have a helper and he lives inside of you and the word of his power sustains you. And that you too have a deliverer. And this is, this is a really neat thing. Because while David 
was praying for deliverance and he already looked at God as a deliverer before he was delivered, you have been delivered. How so? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. This is a reality in Christ and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Your suffering is important. There there, there is a purpose for your suffering. It's happening for a reason, as Brandon alluded to in his prayer. But the greatest thing that you need to be delivered from if you're in Christ has already been accomplished. Your sin in part, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. It is well, it is well with our soul. And beloved, I pray that it will be. May our Lord pour out his grace upon us so that in whatever circumstances we have, calamitous, good, I trust in the steadfast love of the Lord forever. David's words in Psalm 52. I will wait for your name, for it is good. Let us pray. Father, we come before your throne, privileged to be your people, amazed that the God of David is the very same God that has called us out of darkness. The very same God that David had as a sovereign Savior is our sovereign Savior who hears our prayers, who helps us, who sustains us, who holds us in his hand, who begins a good work in us and brings it to completion. Father, I'm amazed by you. I am amazed by your love and your mercy and kindness that you lavish upon us. Lord, help us to reflect in all circumstances. Help us to rejoice, reflecting upon your faithfulness, reflecting upon the many wondrous deeds that you performed on our behalf. The most important deed is reconciling us to a holy God by giving us your son, Jesus Christ. Because of him and because of what he has done, our biggest need in life has been taken care of. Praise be to God. It's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.